History happened everywhere, a random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge for one of us to go away and find out all they can, then come back and reveal all to the other. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, I'm Pete Goddard, and you're listening to History Happened Everywhere. In the studio with me here today is my good friend, pal, confidant, Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello, everyone. We're, we're approaching the summer. We are approaching summer. It's light, it's warmish. Are you working on your dad bod, um, ready for your bikini? Well, uh, become, I am not beach ready yet, I must admit. I'm probably pavement ready, I think. It's about ready. where I am, okay, yes. Okay, so you're happy to go outdoors. I'm willing to leave the house. Okay. Uh, I'm not willing to go onto a place where removal of tops is at all a possibility. <laughs> but bosoms, you'll be, you'll whip them off straight away. I frequently Donald Duck around the, around the place, that's fine. <laughs> That's <laughs> not an image, <laughs> Donald Duckin. Oh, I'm so sorry, my friend. But why did Walt Disney and Co. have so many animals that didn't wear trousers? Well, it was incongruent, wasn't it? Some had, like, Mickey Mouse has shorts. Um, it was just Donald Duck. I guess feathers were considered to Porky be Pig sufficient. Porky Pig does it as well, doesn't he? Porky Pig does do it as well, yeah. That's actually pretty good for someone with such a deep voice. <laughs> That's all you're getting. All right, let's try others. Uh, goofy. This <laughs> is quite good. I'm going to keep going at this. What about, uh, what about Donald Duck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's I used all, to, folks. I used to know how to do that, but uh, it's gone horribly wrong. Minnie Mouse. I actually don't know what she's Minnie Mouse sounds yeah, like. Yeah, neither do I. Pluto? You didn't talk at all, did he? <laughs> <laughs> and this is how you got your job working at Disneyland. Exactly, yes. Uh, and that's why I played the characters who didn't say anything. The silent era was my, my specialism. <laughs> yeah. I'm more of a steamboat willy guy. <laughs> you can tell that because you're not wearing any trousers. Way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all this uh, excellent back and forth, it makes me very excited to find out what you've been up to in terms of your researches. But before we do that, perhaps we ought to refresh our memories. Okie doke. Let's hit the button. Check it out. All right, here it goes. Right, Peter, press the uh, button. Get get the Dursalator going. This is happening. And uh, what country am I going to be doing this time on the next episode? Your country is... Yes. Wildcard! Ah, our famous HHE wildcard. You don't have to decide yet. We established the rules a while back that uh, I'll tell you your topic and time period. Okay, and the time period is? 1800 to 1850. Nice, okay. Okay, so let's check the topic. Okay, the topic is? (laughs) This is interesting. It's not rocket science. Right, it's not rocket science in 1800 to 1850. And you have one minute, I believe, according to the rules of wildcard, to decide what you want. Yeah, okay, all right. So uh, what do you think you'd like me to do? Can I distract you? Or am I allowed to distract you while you're trying to think? All right, Canada. Canada? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, I'm, I'm go- super surprised. Uh, yeah, me too. It they, just, <laughs> just popped into my head. I'm probably going to really kick myself over this. But uh, right, so it's not rocket science. In Canada, during 1800 to 1850. 
Wish me luck. I wish you all the very best of luck. So, Wildcard Canada. That means we're guaranteed an excellent episode, I believe. It's it's an interesting one. I, I really like this. This was an interesting challenge. Normally we get like soccer or politics, religion, you know, we get one of those things. Whereas it's not rocket science, really doesn't focus in on anything. No, Canada's golden age of rocketry is sadly out of reach for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, let's get cracking into it, shall we? Let's have it. All right. So let's talk about some background. Canada. It is located on the North American continent. It's famous for its natural environment. So you look around there, you think of oceans and lakes and rivers and forests, mountains and plains and snow, uh, ice hockey, maple syrup, apologizing saying a at the end of a sentence (laughs) these are all the things that it's famous for it's the world's second largest country that's big right by total area after russia wow Uh, so it's approximately 10 million square kilometers 3.85 million square miles it's pretty big it's 18 times the size of france 18 france's atlantic to the east pacific to the west arctic to the north Uh, so you've got the uh, a land border between the usa and canada It's the largest non-military land border in the world. 37.5 million people living there today, but yet 90% of Canada is uninhabited. 90% of that 90% live within 300 miles of the border. Ottawa is the capital, and the three largest areas are Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Montreal is the second largest French-speaking city after Paris. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. The name Canada, it comes from the Iroquoian word Kanata. A French explorer back in the day uh, was told the name of like a local village, Kanata, and then he just used that name to describe the entire area. I shall call this place, Place. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's exactly right. You'll have seen the Canadian flag. Yes. Red background, white square in the middle, uh, an 11 point maple leaf in the center. It's, I love the Canadian flag. It's super distinctive, but is still sufficiently simple that you can draw it in a, a quick sketch. Absolutely. A lot of people think that the 11 points on the maple leaf reflect the provinces within Canada. That's just not true. It's just that's the shape of a maple leaf. Uh, Canada facts. I'm ready. 20% of the world's fresh water is there. Wow, really? All just locked up in ice somewhere? Yep. That's amazing, isn't it? 71% of the world's maple syrup comes comes from Canada. (laughs) 91% of it comes from Quebec. So 91% of 71% of the world's maple syrup comes from Quebec. Victoria Island. And it's the eighth largest island in the world at 217,000 kilometers squared. uh, One third of a France, just slightly bigger than Great Britain. And it's notable mainly for being an island, but it has an island within it. Oh, which also has an island within that. So it's an island within an island within an island. It's a Russian doll of islands. So many islands. Uh, let me tell you quick facts about Manitoba. The Please area do. Of Canada. It's the world's capital for snakes. 70,000 snakes come out uh, after hibernation, crawl around the ground. You'd think it might be Australia or somewhere, but watch out for the snakes Manitoba. in Canada. Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought that, right? Also, Manitoba, <laughs> home to 15,000 of the world's 25,000 polar bears. Wow. So if you're not getting attacked by a snake, it's the you're polar bears. You're going to be eaten by a bear. Yeah. 
Sometimes there are more bears than people in Manitoba. And that's why they keep their car doors unlocked, apparently, uh, all the time. Just quick getaways, just in case. So that anybody could just jump in your car if they've got a bear coming in. Yeah, it's wow. not to let polar bears just drive your car around. I mean, you would. If a polar bear said, if give me the said. keys, I would definitely <laughs> hand them over without a fuss. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you want to hear the national anthem? Please do. All right, here we go. It's a cracking anthem, actually. I do know this one. And, uh, it's one of the more rousing singles. I feel like this is one of the ones where everybody knows a bit of the words, but more than most anthems, you run out really quickly after O oh, Canada. Oh, Canada yeah. <laughs> anyway, there you go. Nice work, Canucks. That's it. Right, let's talk timeline. Time. We're going to zip through the timeline because we've got a lot to talk about. Today. All right, when are we, Ryan? Right, so let's go back 12,000 BC. Who's there? Is it early man? It's early man. <laughs> is he Portuguese? <laughs> <laughs> there is a pattern emerging. Uh, the first inhabitants migrate from Siberia. Ah. They come across the Bering Land Bridge. Uh, around 1000 AD. A skip forward. years ago. Yeah, a bit of a skip forward. Norse explorer Leif Erikson. We and have, he becomes we've, the we've first European. Leaf. We've met Leif before. Where have we met Leif? We've met in Sweden. Nice. <laughs> uh, and he starts exploring the coast of Canada. And he even sets up a small encampment. But... It doesn't really last very long. And 1497, Englishman John Cabot claims Canada's eastern coast in the name of King Henry VII. Uh, the 1500 sees a series of British and French explorers rocking up, claiming the land for their monarchs. But they don't really stay around very long. In fact, it's not until 1600 when the French and the English start uh, establishing trading ports and really sticking around a little bit longer. 1650, the Beaver Wars start. <sighs> Beaver War. It's us against the beavers. <laughs> <laughs> I would sign up for that one. I think, yeah, I'll fancy my chances. Yeah. Uh, no, it isn't. No, this is over the fur trade. There is then a series of claiming and disputing land that goes on again between the English and the French, which continues for a while, which actually kicks into 1755 and the Seven Years' War which you may have heard of. Uh, both countries fight over the land. 1775, the American colonies declare independence from the British uh, in the American Revolution. And when that conflict ends in 1783, a land border is established between the you know, British part of, of Canada and uh, America. And 10,000 British loyalists all head north, migrate north out of America into Canada. So this starts to change the diversity of the population, which at the time had kind of been Southwest English and Irish. And now you've got like a whole variety of different people, uh, kind of Americanized British as well. So that brings us to our time period, which is 1800 to 1850. So 1812, the USA declares war on the British. And there are skirmishes on the border. The war ends two years later, 1814, and a new border is established. And that's basically further north, which is where it is today. After that, 1857, Queen Victoria visits and she declares Ottawa the capital. That's how they do it. Fact. <laughs> 1860, the maple leaf becomes the official emblem of the country. And July 1st, 1867, Canada becomes a country, joining the various provinces together. 1870, Canada starts to grow. It acquires a few more various bits of land that are surrounding it. And in 1949 is the last time that sort of happens. Newfoundland joins the country and becomes its 10th province. So that's Canada. That is Canada. That's the timeline. So let's talk about the subject. It's not rocket science. Well, I know what it's not. What isn't it? 
It's not rocket science, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> it's not rocket science. <laughs> I don't know why um, I found it so hard. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? So it's 1800 to 1850. Rockets aren't around, right? Wrong. Rockets are around. Oh. Right? Blew my mind. So <laughs> in London, 1805, so right in our period, William Congreve, he's designing a prototype rocket motor, um, which he placed inside a, like a heavy iron tube, and he put a conical nose on the end of it, you know, like, like a rocket, a rocket. <laughs> uh, and he demonstrated it in 1805 and soon after that it was being deployed during the napoleonic wars and the war of 1812 so rockets were in use during warfare in our period at the very earliest point of our period so that's a really fascinating fact in but fact, i can't help but point out ryan that this is rockets <laughs> right and, no, well no, no 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 it's not no this is rocket history <laughs> <laughs> it's not rocket nice science. loophole i like it but in fact congreve then goes on to publish three books on rocketry which i can't go into because that is rocket science <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so what what am i going to talk about right well it's not rocket science is also an expression right we're all familiar with that it means that you don't think something is very difficult to do or understand so pete just you know put the dirty plates in the dishwasher you know it's not rocket science absolutely or uh you know pete can you just can you just put the lid back on the toothpaste you know it's not rocket science just or you know like can you replace the toilet roll when you're done you know it's not rocket science can't help but feel you're or pete you know can you pick your right? clothes up off the floor because you know it's really bugging me you, that you just keep doing this if you pete. gave me another drawer ryan i could probably put my things away if i didn't have to sleep in the bath well i'm just saying it's not rocket science <laughs> So uh, it's not rocket science. It appears in the 1980s in America, in the USA. Uh, any idea why? Because um, they had lots of rockets. They had lots of rockets. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, they had a history of rockets going back to post-World War II, where scientists were brought from Germany, and uh, they helped the Americans with their military and space programs, building rockets for them. Again, can't really be talking about rocket science, so I'm going to skip over that a little bit. <laughs> that rocket history, which is entirely <laughs> yeah, acceptable. Rocket history is exactly right. <laughs> but what that meant was, in the public consciousness, these were genius-level scientists, right? And rocket science um, became equated with something sophisticated and intellectually difficult. So basically, something out of the capabilities of just your regular, ordinary Joe. The first reference to it, December 1985, um, in the Daily Intelligencer, a Pennsylvania newspaper, and it wrote, Coaching football is not rocket science, and it's not brain surgery. It's a game, nothing more. Fairly straightforward, but that's its first reference. It also mentions there, it's not brain surgery, um, which is another expression that people use. That was when, in sort of the 1960s, when brain surgery was again becoming a bit more in the public conscious and being a brain surgeon was something to aspire to as being something tasking, really hard to do. But before that, what other kind of expressions were people using? Before brain surgery, before rocket science, what were people saying? Well, it's not manure raking, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. oh, that's way back, that one, uh, from the early peasantry. Um, well, it's not computer science, is it? No, they weren't saying that. What they were saying was, it's a piece of cake. It's as easy as falling off a log. These are all idioms, expressions that sort of say the same thing, right? And so, <laughs> given that it's not rocket science... I'm going to talk about some of the other expressions that mean the same thing. Quite right, too. I support that 100%. You've got my full backing. Mm -hmm. 
So let's talk about brain surgery. Oh, no, wait. It's, <laughs> it's not, not brain, brain surgery. surgery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me take you back in time. May 24th, 1833. Plug it in. A ceremony is taking place at the Natural History Society of Montreal. The Montreal Gazette is there, and they give notice of the event, saying, This being the first ceremony of its kind, it forms an interesting record in the history of the city, and will be well worthy of the public curiosity. The room was packed. Rampant. Based on that advert. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot to do, was there? <laughs> <laughs> the Canadian Current... Um, observes that the audience included the Chief Justice of the District of Montreal, the acting principal of the University of McGill College, almost all of the Protestant clergy of the city, several of the Roman Catholic clergy, several members of both houses of the legislature, many members of the bar, and a goodly number of ladies. Three. <laughs> that is a goodly number. There were speeches, there were some readings, and then finally... Do you like that? That's, you believe I did. You should use do my that every time that. you enter a room. Then people would be like, wow, <laughs> this guy must be important. He has his own fanfare. <laughs> and then finally, a young man is invited forward and awarded the university's first ever degree a doctorate in medicine and surgery. This young man. <laughs> do you like this? I do. <laughs> <laughs> this young man is Dr. William. Loki, right? Know uh -huh. him? Oh yeah, he's a celebrated. Um, right, everyone knows Doctor Loki, brain right? Brain surgeon? <laughs> no, <laughs> not, not a brain, brain surgeon. surgeon. No. So, uh, who is Doctor Loki, right? You know, he's this is a man who's just become McGill University's first ever graduate of any degree, and also Canada's first ever medical graduate. Right. So, this is the first doctor, official doctor in Canada. So, it's not brain surgery but it is a milestone in the history of medical education in Canada, right? And so this is a story I'm calling The Tragedy of Dr. William Loki. Do you like it? I think I like you bring drama to these things, right? Yeah, that's I, what I was trying. Always, kind of, always <laughs> engaged. <laughs> okay, William Loki, born in Montreal in 1810. At two years old, his father dies, uh, and he's placed under the guardianship of his mother and a local merchant called Arthur Prime, which is a, the best name. Arthur Prime is a great name. <laughs> it's either a robot or something. Superhero alter <laughs> ego. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's kind of strange. He's placed under guardianship of both his mother and this guy. I'm but... curious as to why he's been placed under guardianship of his own mother. Surely he's his mother already. <laughs> you don't need to do any more. <laughs> so he grows up. There are no records of his schooling, but clearly it's enough to get him into medical school because that's where he goes in 1828, aged 18 years old. And he was there for five years, which is, I guess, typical for a medical student. Anyway, he attends lectures. He acts as an apprentice to uh, other doctors there. Uh, he's a good student. Is there anyone else there at the time or is it just this one guy? <laughs> there are other students there. Uh, he, remember, he's just the first to graduate. So the other doctors that are there... They're real doctors, right? But they are from other places. They have migrated there and are now living there. So he was a good student. 
um, the so say his reports that come through. They say he drew forth the well-merited compliments of the professors of the college, which is you'd like to get that on your report, wouldn't you? Yeah. They said he had superior ability and commendable industry. And in 1832, he worked day and night trying to help the people that contracted cholera during the cholera epidemic. Yeah. Uh, He was popular. Um, there no, is dissertation. Not <laughs> the cholera epidemic. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, so why do you think you deserve this? Well, I think you're fine. Yeah. Here's a list of people who are now alive. Thanks I'm to alive. Me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, he was popular with fellow students. Um, there is a newspaper article. Again, newspaper looks searching for news. <laughs> These guys are scratching around. Surely something's happening. Right. Well, and it was in 1833. Um, they wrote... The medical students of McGill College, as a mark of respect for William Logie, Esquire, MD, invited that gentleman to partake of a dinner on Thursday last. The party left for Mr. Roscoe's splendid establishment, where the dinner was prepared, and after spending a a day of utmost hilarity, they returned to the city on the same evening. In other words, they went out for a meal. (laughs) Again, newspapers struggling for stories. I have to say that the last time I went for a curry, the Croydon advertiser did have an (laughs) eight-page colour supplement dealing in the intricacies of the evening. But uh, was it utmost hilarity? It was. It was a fine establishment. (laughs) (laughs) A little advert for Mr. Roscoe is there. (laughs) Anyway, so following his grand graduation, William applies for a license to practice medicine in Canada. With very little competition, one would imagine. (laughs) Exactly. So you'd think it'd be straightforward. But no, the medical board refuse. (laughs) They insist instead that he undergoes a further examination. And so, rightly, William goes, nah. I'm all right. (laughs) I'm going to take this to court. So he goes to court. And uh, not only that, he wins. And so he can now be an official licensed physician in Canada. Hooray! But it's too late (laughs) because before that decision is reached, he's like, I'm out of here. And he packs up his bags and he ships off and leaves Canada. Wow. That was careless to lose your first and only doctor. (laughs) So William Logie, Dr. William Logie becomes Canada's first doctor never to obtain a license to practice in Canada. (laughs) Where did he go? It's a good question. So we don't know why he left Canada, um, but we know that he moved to Louisiana. Because why not, right? Mm, weather Warmer, and I guess. All the alligator you can eat. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and there he becomes a licensed medical practitioner. Finally, he gets his license. Now, as we say, Louisiana might seem a bit odd, but at the time, New Orleans was a busy seaport. And French speaking. French speaking, right? It's all very good for somebody who's from Canada and maybe speaks French, yeah. Um, but it's a seaport, and so it brings with it all types of diseases from around the world. So they need lots of physicians to sort of help and take part um, in curing people. So you've got smallpox, yellow fever, epidemics. They were, like, frequent happening all the time. Malaria and dysentery, like malaria, I guess, from the swamps and stuff. But it meant social and political influence. But that was 1834. At the end of that same year, he returns to Montreal, and he marries Frances Matilda Ford. Oh. Isn't that lovely? It's beautiful. All right. And they both return to Louisiana and they settle. They buy a large tract of land. They live. They work. They have some kids. By some kids, I mean William Kenneth, or William Jr., as we'll refer to him, Isabella, Emily, Albert, Charles, and Leslie. It's a good crop. It's good going in within 10 years, yeah. And all seems to be going well, right? Until... 
bum, bum, bum. Until uh, 10 years later, in 1851, they suddenly sell up. Right now, uh, reasons are unclear, but when you look at the period of time, it looks like because there is this tension growing between the north and the south, he might have moved north with a, a slight migration of people being told you're not very welcome here. So anyway, whatever the reasons, William and his wife and his family move north to Geneva in New York. Mm. Cue some New York music or something. New York, New York, (laughs) so good they named it twice. (laughs) Geneva, New York. So it's 1850. Geneva is prosperous. It's uh, this well-established community. There's about 5,000 people there. Uh, Many of them well-to-do. They're living in these big stately manors. Um, It's built on a busy trade route. There are railway connections. Industry is there, like glass manufacturing, which was big at the time. And it also had Geneva College which drew students from all over the country. And Geneva College, actually, importantly for this story, uh, is that it had a medical department with six professors, as opposed to the one that he had in Montreal, a demonstrator of anatomy. Sounds like an awesome job. Yeah. There's a leg. That's a a face area. (laughs) General foot. This would be your foot. All over. That's all skin, that. (laughs) All right, off you go. Write that up. And about 130 students, as opposed to him and someone else, which is <laughs> what his student uh, experience was. Oh, in. the dinners they all have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Utmost hilarity. Um, in fact, two years before he gets there, the first US woman to receive a doctorate uh, graduates. So this is a real key point, and it would be attractive, you would imagine, for a physician of perhaps his skill and talent and notoriety to um, to be in the area of. Now, there's no record that he actually worked at the college or took part in or met any of these people we don't know but you gotta kind of imagine that maybe so that's yeah. the case it seems like it's a good place to be to be a physician anyway he buys a lovely home they all settle in it's all going great only then it doesn't the same year he moves to geneva new york his mother dies age 77 and uh, reasonably good innings yeah 77 especially at that time yeah but still his mother dying. Yeah, it makes you sad. Yeah, it makes him sad. And he buries her, and her grave lists her as Leslie Prime, mother of Dr. Logie. So she marries Arthur Prime. Oh, yeah. She becomes a Prime. Like, how could you not with a name like that? <laughs> what did his brother Optimus have to say about that? <laughs> Everyone listening to this has been waiting for you to say, make that comment. <laughs> I've been trying to hold back, but it came up again and I couldn't stop myself. Yeah. Uh, we don't know what happened to Arthur, but she was with William, so uh, we assume that Arthur had probably passed on too. Anyway, she took his name. Not long after, William's eldest daughter dies, aged 18. Um, William reacts to this. He sells his home and he decides, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a farmer. He's like, I need to get away from people for a while, so he buys a farm. Two years later, so we're now in 1861, and the Civil War starts. And William Jr., his eldest, and Albert, they both enlist. William Jr. comes back a year after he's left to recover from malaria and dysentery. But he goes back to war soon enough, and when he goes back to war, he takes Charles, the third son, with him. Two months after they leave, Frances, who is William's wife, she dies. Oh dear. Yeah. So in a bit of a spiral, he goes, you know what? I don't want to be a farmer anymore. So he leaves the farm, uh, leases it out though, and moves into rented quarters in town. And uh, there he has an advert in the paper which lists him as physician, surgeon, and accoucheur, which is a male midwife. Accoucheur? Accoucheur, yeah. Mm. Accoucheur. 
But it's not enough because his sons, William Jr. and Charles, both at war, are sending money home to William in amounts of up to $50 and $75, which is an equivalent to about one and a half thousand US dollars today. Good kids. Good kids helping their dad out. Yeah. So two months after Francis's death, William receives news that his eldest son, William Jr., has been killed in action, age 26. A eulogy is published in the paper. It's a really long one. And the body is brought home for burial near to his mother. And a headstone is erected by his college fraternity brothers, which reads, A brave soldier and true brother. So it's 1865. Dr. William Logie, aged 54, now has just four members of his family remaining. That's Albert, Charles, Emily and Leslie. I feel this is kind of like watching a horror movie as the ki- the gang of kids gets to dwindles away. <laughs> yeah, so you're going to want to not split up, right? <laughs> stay together. Don't, don't, yeah, we should investigate. No, <laughs> no just stay just together. Hang. Just yeah. chill out, guys. <laughs> so the farm is put on the market. Um, there is an advert in the Geneva Gazette which says For sale, a farm of 103 acres, well under drained. 13 acres being in wood, situated one mile north of Geneva. Improvements, good. Also, a two-horse railway power with thresher attached. For further particulars, apply on the premises to W.L. Logie. The art of advertising was not lost on those people, was it? No, I guess (laughs) not, because it took a year to sell. (laughs) Um, But then, and the day that it did, an auction took place. And again, there was another listing which said, An extensive sale of livestock, farm implements, household furniture. This is the largest amount of property that has ever been offered at any auction. He's dwindling, this guy, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah, and so at this point, William disappears off the radar. We don't know what happened to him for five years. He just vanishes. But in 1872, we find him 500 miles away in South Haven, Michigan, living with his son, Charles, just the two of them. But he's working, so that's good news, right? There's an advert in the Sentinel of South Haven, Michigan, which reads, William Logie, MD, having permanently located in South Haven, offers his services to the citizens of this vicinity office in front rooms over the post office well, that's good because frequently you know you get your lumbago sorted and then right. you pop down for some stamps yeah absolutely it's convenient send that parcel get your i'm not convinced probed. i'm not convinced by the permanent part though because uh, it's only gonna be another tragedy before he becomes a plumber and moves to <laughs> minneapolis or something. <laughs> yeah so three years later charles his son who's living with receives his medical doctorate and sets up practice so that's good news A year later, though, Charles sells the practice, leaves William and moves to Kansas, where basically he stays until his death in 1889. So William's now on his own. William, impoverished, applies to the courts and asks to receive the pension of his late son, his eldest son, William Jr. The courts seem to have a problem with that. So they call on Charles. Charles goes to the court and on behalf of his father and states that for the past 15 years, his father had been, and I quote, very poor and dependent upon my brother and myself for his support. And that ever since the death of his eldest son, his father has been and now is very poor and infirm and unable to support himself, that he owns no real estate, but very little personal property consisting of a few medical books and not exceeding in value the sum of $100. A newspaper reporter at the time states that William has at least once passed through, and I quote, a period of insanity. So it looks like the bereavements and the anxieties of the Civil War caused some form of mental illness in our doctor. 
William lives in Michigan for another two years, and there is a reference to him in the local paper in 1878 which says, Dr. Logie has so far recovered from his recent severe illness as to be removed by his son to New York. Since his removal, we have heard nothing of his progress. And a year later, on October 8th, 1879, the Geneva Courier reports, The remains of Dr. Logie, formerly and for many years a resident of Geneva, arrived in town yesterday morning by the early train from New York and were taken in charge by undertaker Barber and interred in the family lot in the Washington Street Cemetery. We are without particulars concerning his death. Dr. Logie will be remembered as an excellent practitioner and a good citizen. No other records of the burial in Geneva have ever been found. And so, McGill University's first ever graduate, and Canada's first ever medical graduate, lies somewhere in an unmarked grave. It's not brain surgery. <laughs> there you go. Oh dear, poor fellow. Right? Uh, what a story. I, I can't help but think he's... Every time something bad happened to him, he just moved down. <laughs> and profession, it's like, you can't get away from yourself, mate. <laughs> well, this is it, right? You've got to wonder. Um, it, it's easy to create a, your own narrative, your own story about these things. Like, did he gamble? Was he alcoholic? Did he, you know, who knows? Maybe he was taking pills. He's a doctor. He had access to these things. Yeah, it's sw- easy to make stuff up. Popular young man at university down to a destitute old man. Old Broken. Oh, it's sad, isn't it? It is sad, man. Oh. It's a sad story. But I felt like it needed telling. Let's move on. All right. And let's liven things up a little bit, right? Okay, that was, that yeah. went a bit down, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, when the pinnacle was the extensive news report of the dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, talking of dinner, uh, let's move on to the next one. A piece of cake. Hooray! All right. So today, if you wanted to make a light and fluffy cake, right, that'd be fairly easy. You go to the shops, maybe you'd pick up one of those prepackaged boxes, you know, shove a couple of eggs and some oil in it and stir it, put it in the oven. Away you go. Nice and done. Tasty little cake. Uh, but in Canada, in the uh, early 1800s, it is not a piece of cake. From a book on how to make cake from the period, the flour should be dried before the fire, sifted and weighed. Currants need to be washed and dried, the raisins stoned, sugar needs to be pounded, rolled fine and sifted, and all spices, after being well dried at the fire, pounded and sifted as well. And now if you wanted a fluffy cake, uh, you're going to also have to make your own yeast, because you can't just go to the shops and buy some, right? And you're going to do that by fermenting fruit, vegetables or grains. And then you need to keep it alive, right? And you haven't got a refrigerator. So you've got to make sure that it's kept at the right temperature, otherwise it'll die. And you don't want to contaminate it with bacteria. So this is tricky stuff, right? To try and get your cake just to have some lift, some rise to it. Even when you did get yeast that worked, it's going to take you 24 hours for that batter, cake batter to rise. So this is no, oh my God, I've got to make a cake for tomorrow. And suddenly you've got a cake for tomorrow. This takes time to think about. So, you know, people just got used to either not having cake or... That would um, be my choice, to be honest with you. Do you fancy some cake on Thursday? (laughs) No, I'm all right. (laughs) Or having basically like a dense, flat cake. And that's what some people did. And so there is a recipe I found called Indian Pound Cake. Uh, This is from a a Canadian recipe book dated 1827. It contains two cups of cornmeal. Corn, I guess, was more readily available then. Uh, Two cups of sugar, one cup of all-purpose flour, one cup of butter, eight eggs, one small grated nutmeg, and a pinch of salt. 
So no, nothing to make it rise in there at all. So I've made some for you today. So let's enjoy a piece of cake. Let's do it. All right, let me get it. Okay, he has re- re- removed from the fridge a... Did they have a lot of cling film in the... <laughs> Traditional cling film. <laughs> Cellophane wrap. Other plastic wraps are available. Yeah. <laughs> Is cling film a brand? They must be. So we've got two slices of cake here. Two pieces of cake. Two pieces. Two. One for you and one for me. Excellent. Okay, so... so this is traditional 1827 cake. So this resembles a, a thick slice of bread, really, as much yeah. as anything. It's kind of a nice ambery colour with a darker brown crust kind of around. Yep. I'm going to... It's got little speckles of vanilla nutmeg. or nutmeg, that is, is it? That'll be the nutmeg. Okay, right, I'm going to have a bite. Do it. It's quite dry, Super dry. Yeah, it turns to crumbs, doesn't it, in your mouth? <laughs> It's nice though. I mean, it's cake. It's just cake without the fluffiness. I was expecting. <clears throat> I was expecting it to be denser, like a like a. But it's stodgy... actually surprisingly light. I was. Yeah, I could have gone down the fruit cake route, which would have been you know much more dense. But I wanted cake cake, right? And this is like a it's almost like a sponge, but it's, you can tell it's just missing something, right? I wouldn't wait. I'd have this. Yeah, every time. Mm. Mm, that's good enough. I'll tell you what, though, two cups of sugar will help improve most, mm, most things. Get everything a bit tastier, won't it? Oh. Anyway, I'll make that recipe available, and if you want to make your own 1827 cake, it was super simple. Um, Send us a picture. At hhepodcast at gmail.com or Instagram hhepodcast. Yeah. Any of them. <laughs> Just make a cake already. <laughs> <laughs> so, within our time period, though, uh, fluffy cakes did uh, become more mainstream, and the reason for that is because baking powder got invented. And that got invented in 1843 by Alfred Bird, who was a food manufacturer known for his eggless custard powder. Mm. You might have heard of Bird's Custard. That's the man. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his work. <laughs> yeah, and he made it egg-free custard because his wife was allergic to both egg and yeast. And so he made the alternative and it was proved super popular. And he did the same with, uh, he wanted to make a cake. Um, and bread and stuff and so he invented baking powder but that was 1843 and it was only starting to be manufactured in England in 1846 which gives us sort of four years for it to find its way to Canada and I just assumed that probably wouldn't have happened more of the time period was unleavened cake so there's there's some for you Mm -mm -mm. it's a piece of cake it's a piece of cake Which brings us to our final bit. Easy as falling off a log. Ah. All right. I can't help but feel this might be fertile territory, Canada-wise. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most Canadian bit that we've got out of all of this. Okay, so it's as easy as falling off a log. 1796. Let me take you back. Philemon Wright. Oh, that's a name to conjure with. Right, Philemon. He sets out into the Ottawa Valley to discover new territory. A bit of an explorer, a bit of an entrepreneur. And he finds a suitable area after a couple of years. And he goes back home and he convinces a f- uh, four families and like a few dozen other men to come with him back out into the wilds of Canada and settle this area with him. And they go, yeah, all right. And so they go, including one man called London Oxford, which is a great name. <laughs> um, and Where are you from? It's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> and he becomes the first free black man in the area and also one of the first to own property there. 
it becomes known as Wrightstown. Makes sense, because his name was Philemon Wright. I feel like he missed a point by not calling it Philemon Town. I know, really. Philemon didn't City go for or the... something. <laughs> it's now called Hull, the area. Hull? Yeah. Oh, that's disappointing. Wrightstown has disappeared. It's now Hull. Yeah. Anyway, Wrightstown, it was a beautiful area. It had lots of forest. It had river. It had lots of land, uh, which they could grow hops on. And you'll like this. He sold those hops to John Molson. Ah. Do you know John Molson? I'm aware of Molson Lager. That's right. Molson Coors is the company today. But back in the day, John Molson was a brewer. And uh, products today include? Um, Molson Lager. Yeah, Molson is on the list, yes. Coors Light. Correct. Coors. Also on there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Any others you can name? Um, Moose Peak. Nope. You made that one up. Uh, I did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to just give you some? Do so. All yes. right, let me see how many did you know. All right, this is on their product roster. Mm-hmm. Cobra beer. Oh, yeah. Carling. Mm-hmm. Caffrey's. Oh. Blue Moon Belgian White. Oh, really? Aspel. Foster's. Grolsch. Lech. Miller Genuine Draft. Peroni. Pilsner Urquil. Prava. Recordlig. Red Dog. Cerveza. Sol Cerveza. Uh, Starperman. Tisky. The list just goes wow. on and on and on. Basically, any beer you want to buy is pretty much guaranteed. It's, like it's a by global map, you just said. <laughs> it really is, yeah. Uh, but the hops weren't making right real money. You wanted the real cash, right? Where's real cash? Maple syrup? It's in the Navy. That's oh, right. is it? <laughs> yeah. So he learns that uh, most of the forests in southern Canada... <laughs> Uh, are now pretty much gone because the British were just chopping them down because they needed timber for to build ships. So he starts his own lumber business. First thing he does is he hires some Irish lumberjacks, two men called Gideon Olmsted and Dudley Moore. <laughs> yeah, like the, not the old, you know, 70s comedian, but um, I guess another guy, namesake. And so now he has wood. And so now he has wood. <laughs> okay, come on. We can get through this. Anyway, so he's got the lumberjacks. So now he has wood. Brown gold. Brown gold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's got no way to get it to Quebec, which is where the British are hanging out, uh, which is, you know, 300 kilometers away. Um, so what's he going to do? Well, in July 1806, he loads up a raft, which he calls the Colombo, with 700 oak pieces and 900 planks, and he sails it. It's a heck of a raft. Yeah, it's a big old raft, and he sails it downriver to Quebec. And there he sells all his wood, and it's a huge success, and so begins the Ottawa Valley timber industry. So, what happens in the timber industry, you might ask, in Canada at this time? Well, here's the process. It begins in autumn. The winters in Canada are super snowy. Lots and lots of snow. So you've got to get in there just a little bit before. Wright would take a small team of men um, and they would haul their tools upstream. Uh, They would find a suitable wooded area. They would chop out the clearing and they would build like a small little logging camp. Then in the winter, the swampy ground freezes over and the lumberjacks arrive singing their lumberjack song, Hmm. one would imagine. Axe over the shoulder. Yeah, (laughs) big old beards. Yeah. And they start cutting down trees, as is their want. They love it. They do love a bit of it. 
Uh, and the timber, as it's cut down, is then branded, like you do with cattle. So you get a hot old iron brand and you... And you'd brand it with what was called the end mark. And the end mark is like the company logo, because it just basically distinguishes their logs from other logs in the area. Because they're all going to go downstream towards a sawmill where they'll need to get sorted out. So that one was mine. I know that because it's got a mark on it. And in fact, it was illegal to cut that mark off. Or that was my first question. I had a sense that there were log rustlers out there <laughs> chopping the ends off and putting their own. Brand well, on. I'm sure that's possibly the case, but uh, it was illegal, and the fact that it turned illegal implies that someone was doing someone it. Got it and got caught doing got it. Got caught doing it exactly. And they went, "Oh, it's not illegal. We should make this illegal." Yeah, exactly. So they cut the uh, they cut the logs down. They brand them, and then the logs are hauled by oxen or by horses down to the river. And they're then stacked on what's called rollways. Spring comes, snow thaws, and because the snow is thawing, the snow melts and the river levels rise up. They let the rollway go, and literally tens of thousands of logs, and we're talking not like small little cute things you put in a fireplace, you're talking you know, eight, tree. ten feet long tree <laughs> trunks, yeah, all just cascade down into the river and begin to flow downstream. That feels like one of the more dangerous jobs in the process. It's super dangerous, yeah, and we'll come to the danger of, of, the, of this job very soon. And so with the logs floating now downriver, the men have to work quite quickly to steer them, right, to avoid blockages because the minute that it becomes a blockage, you've got a real problem. A log jam, you might say. That's exactly right. So this was called log driving like you're driving steer, like cattle and stuff. Uh, in fact, they were called log drivers, these guys, or river hogs, or river pigs, or indeed river cowboys. The French called them draveurs. They just didn't even bother <laughs> with a log. Draveurs. Oui. Bon. Right, up front, you've got the jam or the beat crew. And these were the more experienced guys. These were super athletic, nimble men who could run around really quickly. And their job was to spot a potential problem before it became a problem. And so they would be scanning the, the logs as they're rushing around in the stream. And you're talking, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of logs around them, all these different sizes. And if they spotted something, they would have to run over the logs to get to the one that's the problem one and then dislodge it, either with like a big old stick or just using brute strength to, to push the logs out of the way. Sometimes they use dynamite as well. Uh, and then behind them, there was a rear crew. Now, the rear crew was the slightly less experienced men, I guess the apprentices, and they were responsible for spotting and pushing along the straggler logs, those that were at the back that were like, oh, I'm a bit tired or whatever. It's like, no, <laughs> keep going. And uh, then could the lame. <laughs> exactly, the lame logs. And so there are other men and they worked on the riverbank and they would push any of these other stray logs back into the river and they had hooked poles to be able to do that. They were supported by a network of wanagans. A wanagon is a kitchen raft and it literally floated down river and just cooked them four meals a day because hmm. I guess you're going to need calories, right? When you're doing such manual, manual work. And running over logs all day long. That exactly. can't be easy, can it? No, no. And it's spring it's still cold right this isn't summer and then you've got wangans uh, they run alongside the river and they carry commissary clothing tools tobacco things that the log drivers could purchase right uh, in fact just a key point on that I, I don't know why but if you had more than one they were known as a marianne marianne don't know why hmm. lost to time as to why they were called marianne so uh, together, this whole crew of drivers get the logs literally hundreds of miles downstream. That was just their job, was just to shepherd these 
these floating logs all the way downstream to the sawmills. So let's talk about those dangers. You, you mentioned about how dangerous this actually was. Well, it, it really was. These guys were working the logs 14 to 16 hours a day, six days a week, right? As a long day. Um, and they risked their lives. Most of the men couldn't swim. This wasn't a time where people were doing lengths for fun. Drowning was a genuine real risk. I feel like even if you could swim, there's a lot of logs in the in the river that's not conducive to These a are, few lengths. That's exactly right. These are huge, heavy, fast-moving, rolling, roiling logs, right, with rocks underneath. And losing limbs, being crushed to death, this happened regularly. Even if you couldn't swim and you weren't crushed... This is ice water, right? This is snow water, freezing cold. So hypothermia was like a genuine real risk as well. And it's not like they could, they could stop the, the logs. They had to keep going, right? Hit the big red button. Yeah. <laughs> Just stop everything. <laughs> so in fact, log driving in the 1800s was considered one of the most dangerous jobs at all. Local newspapers had complete sections to report just injuries and deaths. It was that it was that dangerous. In 1845, 80 plus men died in the Ottawa Valley alone. Cemeteries were created along the riverway so they could bury men as they went. So they carry you didn't wow. have to carry it all the way to the end. It, it was Although crazy. You could just float the body down. Tie it to a log. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, for those who did survive, the trauma of seeing a guy that you're working with every day, like essentially your brother in arms, right, being crushed to death in front of you, people getting post-traumatic stress. I imagine a hard drinking culture developing. There was a huge culture of that, yeah. And there would be like a manager who tended to be the strongest fighter and he was hired to keep the guys in order because of the drinking. So why do it? Why, why would you be a log driver? I want those sweet, sweet log bucks. It paid twice as much as a lumberjack, which was already a super well-paid job, uh, equivalent to hundreds of thousands of US dollars today. Wow. This is big time money. I guess perhaps because they didn't have to pay people, <laughs> many people <laughs> by the end of it. You know, I guess it yeah, equates you, out over over the course of a season. You earn £100,000 a year, which over the course of your lifetime is £100,000. £50,000. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so look, log driving eventually dies out. Railroads and trucks come in and that just negates the need of doing this horrendously dangerous job. And and in fact, it, it, it doesn't actually end completely because there are some remote areas where even trucks and stuff couldn't, there were no trains and things. So they were still doing this up till the 1970s. And so there was this environmental legislation that kicked in and it pretty much just killed it. <laughs> Echoes of the industry continue today. The sayings high and dry, you heard that expression? Oh, it's left me high and dry. Yes, yes, I have. It comes from log driving. It means an unsuccessful log drive. Uh, basically, if the logs are started downriver, but the water's not high enough, so there hasn't been enough snow melt, it, it, it means that the timber will just basically become stranded and will sit in the dry shallows until it gets more water, which would probably be another year. Because it is quite counter counterintuitive saying, isn't it? High and dry sounds like both good Sounds things to be. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I can see if you're trying to move a log downstream, that's quite problematic. Yeah, because it just sits on the ground and you've got no way of moving it. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to kick it down river 300 (laughs) miles. Yeah. And uh, come hell or high water. Similar one. You heard of that? Mm -hmm. Come hell or high water. We're going to do this, Pete. It basically means when you're determined to get something done, right? And it's the same thing. This refers to the race to get the logs downstream. We're going to do it before the water gets down too low. 
there are some industries that have spun off from log driving. Uh, there are companies today which go out and hunt old logging rivers, looking for the old logs, because there are some old logs, that, especially the hardwood ones, which would become waterlogged or damaged or whatever and would just get left behind and they would sink to the bottom of the river where they get covered in silt and stuff. They might lose their bark, but the wood itself is still good to use, especially in the icy water. So these companies go out and they look for this lumber that was either lost, abandoned or just or just sunk during these drives. One in 10 logs are thought to have been lost during a log drive. Wow. So there's a lot sitting out there. They literally, it's brown gold, right? as you were saying. Uh, these guys. What are, are you doing? I'm panning for logs. Panning for logs. It's... <laughs> oh, bonk. Got one. <laughs> uh, these guys are called old school deadheads. Isn't that a great name? That is it. <laughs> I'm an old school deadhead. Anyway, they're, they're, they they pull these logs from the riverbed, they reclaim them, and they sell them for flooring and for you know basically everything else that you can sell wood for. They've got these cool boats as well that have like grappling hook type things that go down and pick up these logs and bring them back because they are enormous. I can't stress how big it is. Well worth looking at. In fact, I'll post some links to footage of some of the early log driving and you'll see just how many logs and how big these things were in comparison to the tiny little log drivers on top of this <laughs> entire field of view river that's just jam-packed with yes. logs. Welcome to the new day one on the new job. Here's your stick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Good luck. Go. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's not not just sticks you'd also get given cleats spiked shoes and that's one of the other industries that that spun up around log driving so log drivers are moving around on these wet slippery rotating logs right <laughs> in churning water and so they needed to move quickly and having spiked shoes meant they could grip the wood and so you've got these special footwear they were called cork boots cork as in c-a-u-l-k not cork as in like floaty cork and they had spikes screwed in now some of the companies that were set up to make those shoes because obviously there was a high turnaround some of those companies still going today and they make things like ice cleats you know if you're going mountain climbing or whatever they make golf shoes you know those spike yeah. shoes that you get lawn aerators those little oh the little weird <laughs> <laughs> if you want to aerate your grass on your lawn you put on these shoes and yeah same sort of principle right i've All got spike visions shoes. of a sort of meeting like there's not much logging now, but what we make is shoes with spikes on. So, so any ideas, guys? My lord. <laughs> Brilliant, Jarvis. <laughs> and then finally, uh, the other industry that's popped up around this, it's not really an industry, but it's a sport. It's the sport of log rolling. So log drivers at the time, right, they... Any of them that couldn't keep their balance, that you're going to get thrown off, right? And that was a danger. So you'd learn quickly how to balance on a log and, uh, and you know, stay alive <laughs> as much as you could. It's a good incentive. <laughs> yeah. And so to stay on a log, the best way of doing it is to keep the log rolling. That You can't just stand on it like a surfboard and hope that it's going to glide <laughs> you down the river, right? You keep the log rolling as, as it goes and that, that keeps you up right so log drivers they would challenge one another as you rightly said you know a long time ago that where there are vehicles of any type <laughs> there will be, be there will be raced and competition stuff well competition you know creeps in and especially the drunker you get and all this sort of stuff so that each logging company they would have their best log roller and they would compete them so there would be competitions put on between these different timber companies to find out who was the best log roller that obviously fades out you know as, as the industry fades but the sport hasn't it's continued on there are lumberjack festivals in the states uh, where log rolling is one of those things alongside chopping down trees as quickly as you can climbing a tree as quickly as you can 
jump on a log roll and uh, and uh, on a log and see how long you can stand up for. And so, yeah, today you've got world champions of log rolling. And in fact, I spoke with an eight-time world log rolling champion, <laughs> Abby Hoshler, yeah, about her career and her experience in bringing log rolling to the mainstream. So, hey, do you want to hear? I do. So, Abby, is it Abby Delaney? My maiden name is Heschler. Okay. And that's my, so in the log rolling world, that's probably a more important name because my Abby mom Heschler. is a seven time world champion. Her maiden name is probably the more important one, which is Sheer. So, but yeah, my mom is a seven time world champion log roller. Right. And then I have two older sisters and one younger brother, and we all have world titles ourselves. Uh So, it's a very small world of log rolling. So as you can hear, Abby and her entire family <laughs> are uh, are into the sport big time. I've got now. I've got visions of the family, and there's like four of them love log rolling, and then there's this youngest sister or brother yeah. who's just not into it. And every weekend, like, <laughs> what should we do this weekend, guys? And like, log rolling. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> It's amazing. I, I picture them all with beards and axes over their shoulders. Flannel shirts. Flannel shirts. Uh, yeah. it's, it's very evocative, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> uh, so I asked her about the sport. So here's Abby's response. So a log rolling competition or a, a match is two people on one log and you're each vying to be the last person on the log or you're trying to dislodge your competitor. There is a center line and you uh-huh. can't step on across the center line and you can't touch your opponent. But other than that, it's a very, it's, it's not rocket science. (laughs) I would say it's not complicated, but it's challenging. Like there aren't a lot of rules. The physics of it are pretty simple. It's a, it's a basic sparring sport, but it's nonviolent. You know, you're on a log with another person, so you're you're trying to dislodge them, and there's you're you're doing maneuvers to try to get them to fall off the log. So in that sense, you're sparring with them. You're really, you know, you're kind of close, but you can't touch yeah. each other. So it has that intensity of a sparring sport, but it's nice because it's not it's not violent. And I think that's why it is a great um and enter- like it's it's why it's a great spectator sport is it's not complicated. Anyone can come up and watch it and be like, "Oh, I get what's going on. That's exciting. That's cool." There tr- you know, there's a lot of action. You don't have to understand the ins and outs. There's not a lot of, "Oh, what you know, with American football, it's like, ah, I don't even know what's going on. Why was that important?" Like, yeah. you know, it's really basic. And so that's why it is a great for its entertainment value. Um, you know, it has been a popular sport. I think that's why actually log rolling kind of has received outsized media attention for the size of the sport. You know, it's been on ABC Wide World of Sports. It's been on ESPN. It was, you know, back in the 1800s, the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was, um, there were like big log rolling tournaments or, you know, at at festivals or the 4th of July festivals or fairs, you know, that was kind of the entertainment. That was the sports entertainment of the day. Because even when I'm teaching people brand new beginners, you know, they hop on a couple times, they give it a try. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, I want to challenge you. Like they want (laughs) to then challenge someone else. It's not, I mean, log rolling is fun. Just the the activity of balancing on a log and, you know, trying to figure out how to stay on. But once you like kind of figure out how to stay on immediately, you're like, okay, now I got to like try to see if I can stay on longer than someone else. Right. And there is something humiliating about 
falling into the water, right? Like, and being soaked by it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, that's where that, like, non, it's like, it isn't violent, but like, you get knocked down. Sure. It's like boxing in that sense. It's like, you're, there's a loser and they fall into the water and they come up <laughs> gasping for breath. And um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's why it is kind of an intense sport. I mean, there's no doubt as to who wins in a, in a competition like that, is there? It's like, that guy's drenched and sad looking. And that laughing character over there is yeah. still sitting pretty high and dry, but in a good way. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I asked Abby whether or not she had any, um, like, what her tactics are. Like, are there are there things that you can do to sort you of... You've asked like, for her secrets. I, I know, I did say that, yeah. And she, <laughs> I, I laughed, I was like, is this going to give away stuff? And she laughed. She said, well, this is her response. I will say this, once it becomes a bigger sport, it will have weight classes. Because again, it's a sparring sport. So it the weight component, once you, if you have two equally talented log rollers of different sizes, the heavier log roller is going to have more of an advantage. You know, if all things being equal, if you have more weight on the log, you are the one that's able to control the, the mass. But obviously you can make up for that with cardio, with speed with, um, you know, endurance, um, just like, again, your tactics. So like, I'm a more petite, I'm one of the more petite log rollers. So my strategy is to have really good fitness, like to be able to outlast anyone. I don't want that to become a factor. I don't want to get tired on the log. I need to know that I can hang on here all day and to like, to not make any mistakes. I just need to take super small. I'm not going to be able to go out there and pull, pull, pull someone in one direction. If they're bigger than me, I'll just going to tire myself out. I'm a, like a left foot roller. I look over my right shoulder down the log at their feet. At their feet. Okay. Is that what you're watching? Yeah, you want to watch their feet for two reasons. One, you obviously want to see what they're going to do. Are they like, can you tell if their foot's back or forward, you know, which way? The other thing is even when you're learning by yourself, you want to, because you want your weight centered, you know, over the log, you want to look down the length of the log and have a long gaze. If you're looking forward, your whole, you tend to just fall forward off the log and you look down at your feet and then your core just drops off the log. So you really want to look down the length of the log, even if you're log rolling by yourself like in yoga, you know, to have like a long drishti gaze, um, or like surfing, you know, you look down the length of the board. You don't want to just look down right at your feet. Right. Well, here's a tip then. I would start writing messages on the shoes. <laughs> right. <laughs> or just a pair of eyes painted on staring back at them or something really yeah, intimidating. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take some psychological warfare into your log rolling. <laughs> right. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I would supplement your advice with clown shoes with really big eyes on them. <laughs> I just think running in clown shoes is probably going to make things harder. So I, I, it, it does kind of make you want to have a go, doesn't it? That description of it, perhaps not the fighting you bit, but the just rolling at all. It sounds like it's relatively easy to pick up. Oh, it, it does. Absolutely. But it's not easy to pick up because not many people have a log lying around that's 10 feet long. And, and a river slash pool yeah. in which to put it. It's like, Indeed. well, I bought the log, but yeah. now I've really fallen at the second hurdle. And, and Abby talks about that in, in this. I think more so than just loving competing in the sport, we really loved teaching it and sharing it with others. And my mom, for sure, passed her love of that along to me. And, you know, I was teaching in, you know, when I was in middle school, I would teach log rolling lessons to the kids in the community of the park and rec. And yeah. I went to college on the high school and college on the East Coast and hauled my 500 pound wood log out east with me and taught log rolling. You hold the 500 pound log. Yeah. And it takes the world champion to 
be dedicated enough to get that log out, um, you know, across the country and into a swimming pool. And, you know, in college, I had the entire men's lacrosse team helping me get the log into the pool. (laughs) Um, I'm imagining like a big suitcase for it. Like, the log, like a big carry-on. <laughs> the mail center at the university calls, um, your log has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, that, you know, obviously that that is a problem to getting people on board with log rolling, right? It's And it is something that you need to practice. It's not something that you can't. So the Abby and her family have basically set up a company to do exactly that. I'll let Abby explain. So the first development in the sport was back in the 80s when my mom, she was trying to teach log rolling. Well, not Mm. only, well, one, she was trying to teach in a pool, you know, where you can't wear the spike shoes and teach to kids. And so they, you know, they needed to wear like tennis shoes or go barefoot and so needed some sort of traction. So she started experimenting with different traction surfaces and Mm -hmm. found this olefin carpet, which is like an indoor outdoor carpet and, you know, it wicks water. And so she would just wrap that around the logs. That's ingenious. And the other thing, too again with the when you when you're wearing the cleats you destroy you're destroying your equipment basically you know they <laughs> it, it, it chews it up and then it gets barbelled so now you're always running through the cedar you know if you're at the height of your like training season you know in three to four weeks you can just like destroy your equipment the chainsaw going through that wood yeah yeah and that's really i mean always having to get new logs and stuff and there's knots in the wood and it's and it's hot mm. you know it's just they're heavy and there's a sure. harder on your body. It's not, I, I prefer to roll, even if it were like wood logs with carpet or the cleat, I like the wood logs with the carpet better. Cause it's just, it's faster paced mm. and um, you're a little like, you know, it's lighter weight. And so that carpeted log, um, which obviously is much better than having kids running around in metal cleats in swimming pools. <laughs> Razor sharp footwear. <laughs> yeah, obviously changes the dynamic, right? Suddenly more people can get in. But you've still got a massive lock, right? Yeah, I mean, your first game of football in the park, someone pulls a football out from under their jacket and off yeah. you go but that's no one's, it bring oh, it up. You've got, what, what's the log for huh? <laughs> well let me show you uh yeah so uh, so it, it develops from there i'll, I'll let, let abby explain so your mother introduced you to it at an early age yeah so she learned in a small town in northern wisconsin and fell in love with the sport and then at 16 she won her first world title there and um you know was on abc wide world of sports for it and so that was a big deal and then went on to win um seven titles and but again she loved to she started then teaching those classes and um she she when she was in college in the 70s you know brought her wood log out to Colorado so she went right. to college in Colorado and then when she had kids you know she started teaching us and she taught log rolling at our local YMCA in the swimming pool and and she just she was like log rolling is such a cool sport it, it's it it's never going to grow because our equipment is a 500 pound wood log and you're you know if your skis weighed 500 pounds you would never go skiing <laughs> like it was a really high barrier uh, to entry into the sport. And so then it was kind of like, okay, it's the log, stupid. We need to come up with the equipment to enter the 21st century. So then when I was, when I graduated from college, we felt like, okay, now is the right, let's see if we can do this. And I, I found engineers and to figure out how to create a lightweight, portable log rolling log. And so that's how we now have the key log. 
And so Abby and her family set up a company called Keylog Rolling, uh, which you can go to, keylogrolling.com, and created an artificial full-scale log that is just £65 and that you fill with water once you've got it to the location. Oh, that's genius. So it doesn't have the weight to it until you get there and then you can. And then, of course, you can empty it out and stick it back on top of your car and away you go. So um, if you could get back in touch with Abby, I do have an improvement to her design. Go for it. Um, which is, you know, those kind of telescopic rods. Yes. If you can make it a telescopic log, right. you could get it down to the size of a suitcase. And then if you get there and it goes <laughs> into a, a full-length log, fill that yeah. with water, you're in business. Right. I'll See, take 10% of the profits. I'm going to get shares in this company. Right? This is going big. <laughs> well, it's funny because there are improvements that they're making to the log, right? And uh, one of those things has been the addition of fins that can be added to the log itself, which as the log is rotating, it slows the log down and makes it easier for you to be able to paddle on. I'll let let Abby explain. It's exactly like a training wheel. Yeah, my dad actually was the one who, he really was the instigator behind that because he learned how to log roll, but he wasn't an adult by that point. You know, he didn't, he didn't learn as a child. And so he kind of figured it out, but he never felt like he really got it. And he was like, in order for me to become good at this, it's going to just take too much. I'm never going to be able to get this. Cause when you step on the log, it just spins so fast. And it, if you're an adult, you just have more mass on the log and it spins so fast. And, and then we started key log, you know, he was the one, cause he knew how he really inherently felt how hard it was to learn. Like I learned, I don't even remember learning. I was three years old. Like, it doesn't. So I, kn- I I had taught enough. I knew it's. I know it's a challenge, but I didn't really feel it that deeply. And yeah. he said, if we are going to try to grow this sport across the country, across the world, we need to make it easy enough for people to teach themselves. And so that was, we just were, you know, prototyping different ideas. And, you know, and so um, it was funny when we, you know, mocked up a prototype and it was like late October when we had gotten them all ready and the water in Northern Wisconsin was really cold at that point, but it hadn't frozen over. So we were like, quick, let's get down to the lake and try these out. My dad was in his like hip waders. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we were like, okay, dad, like, give it a try. Like, Good see luck. <laughs> and he did it. And I couldn't believe wow. I was like, oh my gosh, he's actually log rolling. We could log roll together. We'd never been able to do it. And it was just, he, you know, it was really incredible to watch. Just I mean, you wouldn't ever teach someone how to ski by taking them down the black diamond. the first, <laughs> yeah. first run. You know, they're just going to yeah. spend their time falling. And it was the same. And now, I mean, we've been able to start 500 programs across the U.S. People are yeah. really able to learn it, even though the key log like that had to happen. Really, the, the big thing for the sport is going to be the training fins, because now people can learn. I could really see that in like a festival in the Docklands in London really easily you have beginner sessions with the finned logs you have some of the pros coming in i could see a log rolling festival down in in richmond the hipsters would absolutely love it they've got the flannel shirts already (laughs) (laughs) and the beards exactly they look the part it's like come on then (laughs) let's see what you got (laughs) well it's interesting because there is a problem though right and that is those people that look at a plastic water-filled log with fins on it and think what that's not my log rolling right log rolling should be on a log log, yeah so i asked abby about that this was her response it's such a small community and it's hard to because they also are competitive, you know, with us as athletes. 
athletes too. So we are like, we're friends, but we also compete against each other in this sport. Yeah. And so I think now people are really coming around because they're seeing like how we're growing the sport. And, but I think there's a little bit of like, they liked the niche aspect of it. They liked that there was this cachet and we use wood logs and, <laughs> yeah. um, but four female world champion log rollers now all have our key log yeah. that they like use. <laughs> they love the sport and they realize that it's annoying when your equipment weighs that much. And now they can just put the log on their car and they can go around anywhere. And we've made it easier um, to learn. We've also, So now they can teach Absolutely. their friends how to do it and they can share the sport much more easily. So it's it's opening it up to a world, but you know, obviously there are going to be those people that don't like change. Yeah, for some people, the struggle is part of the point, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, and I did like the idea of attending the airport and them saying anything to declare. And, nope, <laughs> <laughs> under your not, jacket, no, no, nothing. You're absolutely sure about that? No, I'm fine. <laughs> um, so I asked Abby about the future, and you know, uh, th- if this is introducing it to people, like, what's her vision for for the future? Well, our vision is to make log rolling an Olympic sport. I, you know, I know that we have a long way to go to get there, but I think that people know what the Olympics looks like so they can rally around it. You know, if I said, I want log rolling, I want there to be a true world championships of log rolling or where there's this, you know, that people don't really know that. But if they get excited about the Olympics and the Olympics means that there's a certain amount of countries and there's a certain amount of organizing bodies. And so, you know, I think that's our grand vision. We're not actively doing anything in terms of like trying to like solicit the Olympic committee right now, because we still know we need to grow the sport first. I'm, I don't have my fingers crossed for myself competing at the Olympics, but maybe <laughs> I could be coaching one there or, you know, or in the stands at least cheering on my grandchildren or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because Paris is, I think the next one, right? 2024 yeah. uh, the Olympics, um, but they've introduced four new sports, break dancing, sport climbing skateboarding and i think surfing surfing so you know if new sports are being introduced to the olympics why Mm -hmm. couldn't log rolling be part of that? it has all of the um ingredients for an olympic sport because one it's um i think a lot of the sports that they are including now are individual sports because it's you know you don't have to house whole teams of people um there's not a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built for it it's just you need a box of water and it doesn't even need to be very deep it's great for television there's not, you know, it's not like a marathon or golf, you know, it doesn't take up a lot of space. You need two cameras and there nothing moves. You're not like going back and forth across the court. So I definitely think it has the ingredients. It's just as we need to get more people involved. I think she should be on the phone to Red Bull immediately. <laughs> Red Bull. They, they love that sort of they do, niche. but they'd, they'd want you to do it in lava instead of water or something a bit more dramatic. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not wrong, right? Like, I get excited just thinking about it. I'm like, I can totally picture it. I can as well. It actually. sounds ridiculous. But when you th- well, actually, when you think about it, it's really not. Like, yeah, like well, why I, is that you any listed different? those other sports and I thought, actually, yeah, because it's not javelin and running and jumping, is it? But it's. It, no break dancing is is right no more plausible i would say no yeah um so uh, that sort of brings us to the end of my interview with abby so I, but there were a couple of other questions that i just wanted to ask before we uh before we signed off so um so quick question for you uh there's a a, a river of crocodiles would you be able to run across you know, on the backs of them <laughs> you know like in the cartoons i suppose i'd be better than the average person <laughs> yes <laughs> um 
Is it easy to fall off a log? It's very easy to fall off a log. That's why it's so hard to stay on, on a log. Um, yes, it's very easy to fall off a log. Is it easy to fall off a log? So, uh, so I just asked Abby before we disappeared if there was a message that she had for, um, for us and for the world to spread the message. So this is what she said. I mean, I would just say if you can find a, a way to try log rolling, I encourage everyone to give it a try. Um, you know, now that we can send logs, key logs across the world, it really is a universal sport. Log rolling is a, a primal balance challenge and you don't have to be from a Canadian lumberjack family to <laughs> pursue this sport. You could be live in an urban area and it's the fitness component and the fun. It's really all ages. So if, if you have a chance to try it or if you if you want to get into the sport, you know, please reach out to me. I'd love to we love helping people get into the sport. Absolutely. And at the minute that I get a chance to do it, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna have a go and I will send you a message to let you know how I did. <laughs> yeah abby this has been awesome thank you so much for your time um this, this has been really good thanks ryan thank you for reaching out so there you go abby hushler oh, everyone that was absolutely ter World terrific um, i i too would like to have a go so let's see if we can find some local log rolling and uh, get on with it i like the way she said uh, you don't have to be from a canadian lumberjack family but i can't help but imagine if i attended a log rolling contest and yeah. somebody rolled up who was from a canadian <laughs> lumberjack family i would still be fairly intimidated <laughs> yeah i I'd, I'd be fascinating to know who would win between me and you on a log rolling oh contest. well you've got size and she did say mass was a right. factor but i got big Feet. I'm nimble. You're nimble. You got I'm little, draw little eyes feet. on my shoes. You're great at running. <laughs> so, I might have you on endurance. It's a good question. It is a good question. Isn't it? people. Pete yeah. Ryan's log rolling challenge. Yeah. More importantly, who would win in a log rolling competition between you and Paul Dursley? That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll win at the point he says, I'm not getting on that thing. <laughs> my speedos are wet. <laughs> <laughs> and pinstripe speedos aren't cheap you know <laughs> so there you go that is uh, keylogrolling.com if you want to uh, contact uh, Abby or just to see the log roll there's videos on there of them doing the log rolling competition I, I fully recommend it like honestly this was something that at the very beginning of this I was like log rolling that's so silly and sort of daft but I've I've got really fond to Look it. I little, really am. You can't I see really his face, give but it he's a lit up over it. <laughs> I really want to give it a go. There's one other thing they do called boom running as well. So booms uh, were the, they were like a string of logs that were used at the sawmill. So at the very end of the river where all these logs were suddenly pouring in, they had to sort of shepherd them and marshal them. And so boom logs were logs on a string, uh, on a rope that would stretch for long distances as they penned in these loose logs and a um, log herding like a log herding <laughs> mechanism yeah and so uh, whenever uh, there was a problem or something people would run along these boom runs and of course obviously they spin on the rope that they're on um and they wobble up and down as you're as you're moving on them and so that's an also another sport like log rolling where you you have a string of these uh, uh logs and you run from one side to the other and then 
back again and it's the first person back that wins i mean on the subject of barriers to entry you now need five logs in order to take your part in this competition (laughs) (laughs) and a rope and And water yeah at that point it becomes but honestly my legs go turn the jelly thinking about it my ankles would just snap in an instant you see these guys abby running there's a video of her winning her world record of on on boom running and it's really extraordinary how fast she's able to move and to coordinate her legs. Like, I mean, I just, she's, as she says, it's, it's, it's dangerous, that one, more dangerous than log rolling, because log rolling, you're going to forward, fall forward or backwards, right, into the water and you're fine. But boom running, you're running forward. So if you're going to fall, you're going to hit the log, log in front of and you. And then go yeah. into water. <laughs> and then go into water, indeed. Yeah, it just looks like if you've got weak ankles or knees, then that one's probably one to avoid. But that brings us to the end of our journey through Canada in the early 1800s. I think you did uh, a splendid job, Brian. Uh, you started with a massive downer. <laughs> That's why I set it up front. I didn't want to end on it. Imagine ending a podcast yeah, so on a downer. anyway, he Pete. died in penury. <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> No, that was terrific. I thought uh, that interview at the end was a particularly inspired touch. And uh, thank you, Abby, for being such a good sport and being willing to talk to us. She's amazing. I hope that you get the recognition you deserve in our verdict episode next week. Doesn't Um, matter. We had cake. We did have cake. And uh, you can't take that away. Literally can't take that away. I've I've finished (laughs) mine. You yeah. can't have your cake and eat it too, it turns no. out. <laughs> it is as easy as falling off a rock. And can you just confirm for me, was there any rocket science That in was this not rocket science. There was a moment of rocket history which skirted right. dangerous, dangerously close, <laughs> but uh, entirely uh, splendid interpretation by actually sticking to the brief, actually, even though it was a bit of a non-brief. Yeah, well, uh, just in support of that, uh, we got a little message from Abby. <laughs> Paul Dursley, would you mind giving Ryan a very good grade for this episode? <laughs> well so, paul how can you say no now the lovely abby has requested it that's that's a borderline cheating ryan that's a, a tug on, on the old heartstrings i gotta get a good grade at some point no, that it's was gotta happen that was sneaky i doffed my cap for that sneakiness <laughs> everyone listening to the verdict for my a grade episode <laughs> Right, so I think we should probably consider moving on and finding out what we're going to do next week. Not we. Next time. Next, Not we, but me. Yeah. It is my turn in the researching hot seat. It is. Let's so let's hit the dirt. Let's do it. Let's do Just it. crank it up. Fire it up. All right, fire it up. up. Here it goes. Check the fuse. Mate, yeah, did you, did you swap out the um, gumpinator? No, I decontaminated the. Um, oh, good! That's been I've been waiting for that for a while. Yeah, it's it was there was a lot of gunk in there. It really was. It was getting a bit stinky. It was um, there was a <sighs> slime residue, it was like a fish head in there or something. It was really. Quite, I know. I don't know where that came that from. Odd. Okay, so do you want to know what your country is? I do. I do. Okay. Okay. And your country is Congo. Congo, specifically in brackets Brazzaville. That's curiously specific. Okay, yeah, Brazzaville. <laughs> In Congo, there you go. That's your country or your your place, I'm your location. Write that one down. Congo, I'm all right with. Yeah, but. Brazzaville. Uh, okay, and your time period. Where your time get period these is from? <laughs> <laughs> the workings of the Dursley to remain a mystery. <laughs> okay, and your time period is 1995 to 2000. Ooh, that is uh, something of a relief after last time's <laughs> struggle. So I'm very happy with that indeed. Okay, and your subject. 
challenge, rocket challenge, rocket challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and your subject is courage. Courage. Oh, I like that. I love it. Oh, that I'm I'm very excited to find something. And you know what? That'll be episode thirty of History Happened Everywhere. Wow. So episode bad, thirty is, is courage in the late nineties in Congo. Stroke Brazzaville. <laughs> so the way these things usually go for me, I get all excited and then I Google it and the first yeah. thing that comes up is this period known as the cowardly years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well like, uh, what was courage in Wizard of Oz? Uh, the lion. The cow- it was a heart, wasn't it? Was or was it heart? a clock? Or was it a... Oh, he had something around his neck. Yeah, I think He needed courage and he gave him a heart. I think it was a oh, clock. Oh no, that tin man had a heart, didn't he? That was a oh, clock. Now we're confused. Courage was... Uh, crown pair of boxing gloves <laughs> <laughs> i've seen it like a thousand times how do i no. not know this what does he say get him up get him up get him up put him up put him up that's it put him up put him up <laughs> that's courage for you right well uh, that's my inspiration to find something exciting in the congo slash browser bill Okay, that's our show for this week thank you again ryan for an excellent job and thank you listeners for listening uh if you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard today uh you can email us at hatpodcast at gmail.com you never know you might get featured on a future show that's right and one way to definitely feature on a future show is to rate and review the show on apple Podcasts. we really appreciate any feedback that you can give and you can find out more from us and get in contact with us through our social media we're at hhe podcast across pretty much all of those pretty things. much the lot um anyway we'll be back again in the near future with another episode but in the meantime we will keep you entertained with the verdict where our friend raconteur judge jury executioner and general meanie paul dursley joins us to judge grade and mock our efforts <laughs> meanie he is a meanie he is a meanie <laughs> yeah. yeah and uh, we've said it before we'll keep saying it this is our 29th episode there are 28 others you can go back and have a listen to they are in our archive and you can find those on youtube uh, the podcast provider you're currently using to listen to this or at hhepodcast.com so all that's left to say is you've been listening to History happened everywhere. Did you find the Log Driver's Waltz cartoon yet? I have. Okay. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Is that like famous then? So it was basically like for the Canadian Broadcasting Service, they Uh would play it in between shows. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like when there were commercials or like before they could fill like the space with Uh all advertisements, they would play that like in between the different shows on television. So that must have really got into people's heads. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's a near worm song. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If you ask any girl from the parish around what pleases her most from her head to her toes, she'll say, I'm not sure that it's business of yours. But I do like to waltz with a log